Nonprofit Lowdown. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research, so you don't have to. Let's get started. Hey, podcast listeners. Welcome to another episode of Nonprofit Lowdown. Today, we have a special treat. My dear, dear friend, Erica Hamilton, is here with me, and we are talking about leadership, management, and how to be a nonprofit rock star. Welcome, Erica. Ooh, thank you, Rhea. So, Erica, tell me a little bit about yourself and your journey to leadership. So, I'm a native New Yorker, which I think a lot of people... may not know. I was actually born in the Bronx. My dad was came to New York probably, I would say, in his mid to late 20s. He grew up in South Carolina. My mom was an immigrant from Jamaica. I was raised by a maternal. And my earliest days in terms of thinking about my childhood and thinking about who shaped it are my mom and my dad, but also the extended family that ended up raising me. And then also, quite frankly, some of the people I ran into in high school who really helped early on to shape not only the the intention of my life in terms of what I wanted to do and what I thought I was capable of, but also in terms of my belief in the power of people who are not connected to one another by blood or by other ties, reaching out to give back and give support. So one of the things I always talk about that really, really has shaped the person who sits in front of you today is how a lot of the path of my life was shaped by my high school guidance counselor, Joan Furstenbaum, older Jewish woman, For the listeners that may not know me, I am an African-American woman, and this was the woman who, outside of my family, decided she was going to believe in me in an early age. She's the woman who essentially convinced me to go to the small little college in Cambridge I went to called Harvard at a time in my life when I actually didn't think those things were within my reach or my capability. And I think that experience really shaped my understanding of the impact one human can have in the life of another by just extending themselves and helping someone see potential in themselves that they may not be able to see in their present moment or life. So my early days were shaped by family, a lot of good people, good fortune, and I'm just really grateful for where it's put me in life now. Mm -hmm. And so what happens after college for you? I went to college, as I, I think I mentioned earlier, was raised in a Jamaican household. And While trying to be racially and culturally sensitive, I will just say that people who know Jamaican culture, especially from about two or three decades ago, know when you are raised as a child in a Jamaican household, there are only two professions you can inhabit. One is a doctor and one is a lawyer and everything else is fake. Oh, so they're like Asians. (laughs) I will take your word for that, but yes. But now Um, software engineer has been added. Exactly, exactly. So there might be a third profession now. But I will say one of the great things about going to Harvard was it was the first time in my life that I had ever been exposed to professions that weren't doctors or lawyers. And I understood and actually learned people actually make careers and whole lives out of being of service, like being, you know, professionals in the public sector. And so after Harvard, I had the good fortune to, upon graduation, win a grant that helped me to implement a basically a pre-collegiate program at my old high school. I went to a high school in the Bronx that does not exist anymore, had about a 10% graduation rate when I went there, but was able to bring programming back to really talk to kids about what their aspirations were, how by working with a college guidance counselor and beyond that, you could research college options, think about funding college, but not limit yourself to just the possibilities that you knew. So I did that. And then I also had the great fortune to land a full-time job at a small nonprofit back then called Prep for Prep, 
which helped to really smart and promising kids that were attending public schools in New York City basically understand the pathway to shift into private schools where they could get more resources and more support for their education. So those are the two first things I did when I graduated. I want to switch sides a little bit because yeah. for those of you who don't know Erica, she is sort of rock star status in our world and the kind of loyalty that the people who have worked with you and for you have espoused is incredible. So talk to me a little bit about when you think of leadership, what does that mean to you? You know, when I think of leadership, I think leadership is actually, it's defined by who you are. It's often not the trait that you have that people can see but it is sort of a core set of principles and ethics that you use to guide your decision-making, your actions, your behaviors, your thinking. And so for me, when I think about leadership, I am often thinking about the types of leadership I espouse to most are leadership that focuses on collaboration before decision-making. So how do I make sure all of the voices or as many of the voices that will be impacted by a decision are actually involved in helping to shape it and make it? I think about authentic leadership. I am a woman of color. And one of the things I lead with first is my desire to build relationships and have real personal connections with people before I do work. And so thinking about how I create that by also showing myself is really important to me. And oftentimes that will reveal to me how accepting people are of wanting a leader that looks like me, being willing to accept decision-making from a leader that looks like me. It tells me a lot. But leadership to me is it's always being focused on making the right decision, even when you don't benefit. It's always remembering who you're here to serve and making sure that that's the lens through which you filter all the actions you take, sometimes even requiring that that you put yourself to the side, like you are not even part of the calculus that you're doing in terms of deciding what the best path is to follow. So Mm -hmm. those are kind of sort of big concepts for me on leadership. I think that the white male hierarchical definition of leadership is being challenged. And I'm just wondering, what do you think it means to be a leader as a woman and particularly as a woman of color in any space? I think that's a really, really great question, especially in the times we are living, looking at the interesting and challenged leadership of our country at this date and time. I think right now, to be honest, is one of the most difficult times to be a woman of color leading anything. But I will say I've also been so deeply inspired at how people are stepping into these times, demonstrating real courage and boldness and reshaping, I think, people's stereotypes and perceptions, not only of women of color, but of people who support women of color and and what connection they must have, right? So I think literally just yesterday I was watching a couple of memes of Maxine Waters, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I love her. Some of the was like, Maxine Waters will tell you when you're done. Exactly. Yeah. And I just, and I love that, right? We were so used to seeing the caricature of women of color being dismissed, mm-hmm. being negatively characterized and somehow misportrayed and just a lot of effort being put into minimizing their actual power and their intellect. We think about Think about Michelle Obama, right? Indubitably, one of the most intelligent, smart, driven, 
humble women of color in a leadership position and just how much attention and effort was given to minimize her power by those who wanted to destabilize anyone's belief that women of power can bring value Mm -hmm. or real authority or real perspective or interest or innovation to any situation they're in. And I think I'm in the midst of reading Becoming. That's that's shame on me for not having finished that by now. But I think just having women of color and white men like step up in this moment and in these times to say, no, how dare you to stand up to it, I think is really encouraging and it's really exciting and it's energizing. And so I choose to put more of my attention on those examples in the challenging time we're living and draw strength from that in terms of finding my own inspiration for how to lead forward. And then to be quite frank, I also invest a lot of time mentoring, advocating, and talking to up-and-coming leaders in the nonprofit sector, period, but especially leaders of color and women of color. I put a lot of time and energy and attention into because it is just, it's really a hard path that we walk. And mm-hmm. you know that mm-hmm. as well as I do, given who you are and what your identity is. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. absolutely. So ugh, there's so much to unpack here, but one one thing that I would just want to touch on is it's often said in the nonprofit sector that we're overled and undermanaged. Mm-hmm. And I know that one of your great gifts is that you are an expert manager. So tell me a little bit about, in your mind, the distinction between leadership and management mm-hmm. and some of your great managerial triumphs. <laughs> I'm going to start off by saying I think one of the best management decisions I have made in the past month in terms of choosing how I spend my time was deciding to come here today and get that kind of encouragement. So thank you. So no, yeah, I really, I do think there's a distinction. And there are a lot of people who try to minimize or over-intellectualize that the distinction isn't real. There is a difference, in my opinion. Management, to me, I think of as more transactional, more day-to-day. I think of management as the actions you take, the thought processes you engage in to figure out how to effectively and productively move assets or resources, whether they be people or projects, time, or just just anything you can think of. But it tends to be in order to achieve a specific end in a time-bound period is how I think of managing things, right? You're clear on what the goals are, and typically the goals are probably viewable within your lifetime or your tenure or your span. When I think of leadership, I really think about what is the the hallmark or hallmark or the tenant or the the character people want to be able people will be able to say that I acted with and I I always epitomized during the best of times and the worst of times. It's this consistent trait that I don't have to tell you what it is when you've worked with me or any leader for a long enough period of time, it becomes clear what their true character is and what the principles are that they stand on. One of my big passions and beliefs right now, especially working with managers who either are newer in their seats or haven't really engaged in the time to be self-reflective, is challenging leaders to really define what their personal leadership philosophy is. And for me, what that has been is coming up with a set of tenants that no matter what situation you drop me 
into, no matter what type of team I am managing, or even if I'm an individual contributor, those principles, that personal leadership philosophy is always going to define and be the cornerstone of how I think about operating. And for me, some of those cornerstones are things around really making sure that I am maximizing outcomes if I'm working in a nonprofit for my program participants. So if there's a decision that needs to be made, and sadly, I have had to make this decision where we're limited on budget and the choices, I get a pay raise, the staff gets a pay raise, or we hire another person to run more programming for us to help more people. That's never a hard decision for me to make because it's always going to be the outcome that helps us effectively give out programming to more people, right? Mm-hmm. For me, that's that's in that moment an easy decision to make because my leadership principles are very clear and I know what my end game is and what my goal is, even if it causes sacrifice for me and if it causes sacrifice for others. I'm also less pained about having to explain or translate that type of a decision. That to me is leadership, like making decisions even when they don't benefit you, but they benefit a greater good. And then having the courage to explain and translate to people what your motivation was for that and then taking the accountability, whether or not the decision plays out positive or negative, owning that you made it. And at the end of the day, you are the leader that has to stand behind or in front of it. Now I'm going to thread both needles because I I don't want to leave the other piece that you mentioned before off the table. But it seems to me that the real strength of your leadership comes from your background, whether it's the community that raised you or the people who've extended themselves or your own value system. So what about you as a leader comes from who you are as a person? I love your questions. They're so good. I try to ask good questions. (laughs) And you do. That is a really, it's a really great question. It's interesting because I think about that type of a question often in my role as a mom. When I think about, and I think it's a lot, it's a common theme that a lot of us parents are struggling with, especially raising kids of a certain age. But I'm always thinking about what elements of my upbringing that were challenged or less luxurious, we'll say, do I want to make sure my kids never encounter, but countered with the challenge of really reflecting on How has that lack of luxury, that lack of privilege, those challenges and hardships really helped shape the person I am today and quite frankly, built a level of strength and resilience to adversity that serves as a benefit no matter where I go. And so trying to walk that tightrope, I think so much of who I am and how I was shaped before I ever actually had access to real opportunities in my life, determined how I was able to receive those opportunities without ever forgetting to remain humbled by them. Mm. And also remembering I am a lucky one. So I am a hard worker. I am smart. I'm all those lovely things. But at the end of the day, even with all of that, there has been an immense amount of good fortune and luck that has happened to come my way. Mm -hmm. So I've also never forgotten that this was life I live, which is very charmed, was not my entitlement. It was not due to me. And there are so many other people who put in the same amount of hard work, had the same amount of intellect, who just haven't been able to realize all of their hopes and dreams in the way that I have, right? And so when I think about that, I think 
I'm grateful for that upbringing in so many ways because I think it continues to not only force me to remain grounded, but also it really enables me to be comfortable taking more risk. You know, I often say to people, I'm at a stage in life where I am, I have probably fewer working days ahead of me than I have behind me. And I say to people, one of the benefits of that is it's allowed me to make decisions about my career that require more courage. Some people would say it's more insanity (laughs) in terms of defining how I want to spend my time and what level of risk I'm willing to accept to explore new adventures and new opportunities. And I honestly think part of that has come from growing up and being raised without a lot of money in a home. I grew up in a home that was a one bedroom apartment in the Bronx and five of us lived there. We just, and we figured it out and it was wonderful. It was crowded, but it was wonderful. But knowing that that is what I came from and I have gotten to this level on the mountain where I can look at my view and and take it in and be awed means There's nothing that can happen to me in life in terms of what I lose that's ever going to put me in a place that I can't surmount again, right? Mm -hmm. And so that has been great, honestly, in terms of being able to make life choices, talk to my kids about choices. I have a teenage daughter and a teenage son. And one of the great things is living the talk. Mm -hmm. It's like as a parent, you often say like to your kid, like what you should do. And I think because of the courage I have from my upbringing in terms of taking risk in my career and changing direction in my career, my kids and I talk about that a lot. And I think it's actually shaping how they're thinking about what it means to have a career, what it means to be a working caretaker. And I love that. And I'm grateful to my childhood and my upbringing for that. So long answer, but really good question. But so let me let me flip that around for a second, because a couple of podcasts ago, Brooke Richie Babbage yes, is on. Love her. <laughs> love her. She's actually coming by tomorrow. And we talked about the emotional labor of leadership. Mm. And so as a woman of color in particular, I think women in general, and then like on top mm. of that, women of color, we tend to be incredibly self-sacrificing and mm. we think of ourselves last and we don't, we're not comfortable with receiving. Mm-hmm. And I often think in the nonprofit sector, the amount of self-sacrifice is equated with your commitment to the job. Mm -hmm. So I guess what I'm wondering for you is like, how do you, what is the distinction there? Because you and I have both done the ED job. Mm -hmm. We've killed ourselves. Mm -hmm. We've sacrificed our health, our personal relationships, Mm -hmm. our peace of mind. Like we've done all of the things. Mm -hmm. So what's the balance or is there a balance? Mm. So I don't, I deliberately never use the word balance because I think it's a myth. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a myth that we, especially women who are working full-time outside of the home, are somehow raised to believe exists. It's like the promised land. Mm -hmm. And such that when you have your career and then you have humans you have to take care of, whether they be kids or parents or family or whatever, and you can't achieve it, there is belief of failure and what you fit, what you haven't accomplished, that actually was predicated on a lie to begin with. So it's like this, this negative self-fulfilling prophecy. I think about it in terms of, and it's the best term I've been able to come up with in seeing used integration. Mm. It's really for me thinking about how do we design a life that integrates our professional interests with our personal interests, whether they be family or otherwise. But then also the third part of that trinity is ourselves, like not forgetting like 
yes, you're a mother, but that is not your only, and it might not even be your primary identity at some points in your children's lives. And so really thinking about that and really figuring out at what point is that emotional labor that you're talking about becoming too high of a tax for you to pay? Mm-hmm. I will say for myself in my last job, which I loved, shout out to City or New York, I had a real, real awakening that that job, as much as I loved it, was actually distracting me from taking good care of myself mm-hmm. because my bandwidth not recognizing this at some point before, somehow realizing when I was at City Year, oh, bandwidth is finite. There are not as many hours in a day as we decide there are going to be. So at some point, working seven days a week, always with a phone in your hand, always on email, tending to every crisis while also being at the soccer games or not being at the soccer games and feeling guilty causes an immense amount of stress, an immense amount of anxiety, and is basically structuring life in a way where you're just reactive to everyone else, but almost deaf and blind to yourself. And so, you know, for me, really thinking about that emotional baggage, that emotional labor, what is the cost that it's taking? Like, honestly, looking at myself in the mirror, thinking about, you know, what is it that I'm failing on in terms of taking care of self that I can't fix unless I shift how I'm kind of sort of allocating this investment of energy I think was a real big wake up call for me to to really think about, okay, how do I want to redesign life? How do I want to think about stepping back from career a little bit, investing a little more time in self? And in some in some cases and at some points, also stepping back from the caretaking role, right? Mm-hmm. And really thinking about how to reappropriate that that time. The other small piece I will say was I had a real realization at City Year early on when a woman who served in my chief of staff position, this was very early in my tenure, made a a sort of joke, not joke to me. I was on a staff of 50, one of only three parents. The other was a woman who had an infant and the other was a gentleman whose child was adult aged, right? So only two of us were actually raising kids. And the joke, not joke that my chief of staff at the time had shared with me was, you don't ever have to worry about anybody else having the struggle juggle of working motherhood because seeing how you do it, no no one thinks it's a good thing. <laughs> Right. And I'm laughing now, but I I actually did not laugh when she gave me the feedback. And so I say that just to say, I think it was a moment where I actually stood back to think about not only the impact that my my lack of integration was having on my own life, but also what I was projecting Mm. in terms of how, especially some of the younger women who were thinking about, can I be a, a working mother outside of the home? And wow, looking at the ED, I don't think so. So maybe I'm opting out of kids. Maybe Mm -hmm. I'm deciding that I've got to defer them later than I want. And I think those two moments colliding was really helpful for me to do a hard reset Mm -hmm. in terms of reallocating how I spend time, how much emotion I can invest in things without losing myself and just really being honest about that. We're actually going down a road that I hadn't considered, but I think it's a really important one, which is the narrative around self-sacrifice and leading a nonprofit organization, right? (laughs) Like the story that we tell ourselves is like, it has to be all consuming. It's never like, you're never going to have enough staff. You're never going to have enough money. You're never going to have enough time. And yet on the other hand, are facing a real crisis of leadership Mm -hmm. because who in the right minds would sign up for that? Right. For the amount of money that you're getting paid and the hours that you're going to work and the sacrifice that you make. And so 
I guess my question to you is like, what needs to change in the sector mm -hmm. for people to stick around and want to be leaders for a long period of time? Like Brooke and I were talking about that seven years is about the, the lifespan of an executive director. Mm -hmm. And you and I are former EDs, <laughs> right? Yeah. And and I loved, I loved my job, but I have to say, I, I think I'm like mentally happier now mm -hmm. than I was as an ED. So mm -hmm. what, what do you think has to change in the sector? And, and is it possible? I love this question. And as you know, because you were at the table when we started this, it was one of the, the driving sentiments around starting something called the Women's Leadership Council, right? And we'll talk about that later. But no, I, I honestly think it has to start with honestly, because this issue I think is really prevalent amongst women, no judgment on the men leading organizations. But I think women leading organizations feel it the most. And we are also the ones who feel most like a failure when we can't do the impossible. And I think part of what that is, is because there aren't enough opportunities for, I think, women entering these positions or contemplating these positions to hear from and interact with people who have been there, people who can recount, I don't want to make a sound like the elders, but people who've been in the position who can talk about the realities of sacrifice that are going to be asked for mm -hmm. and the truth about who actually makes the decisions on what sacrifices are allowed, which is the individual, right? Mm -hmm. I think part of the unfortunate tale of being an ED, especially as a woman, is we do, I think, just by nature of gender and in some cases gender and race, the intersectionality, come into these roles, as you said, thinking, if I'm not sacrificing, I'm not giving it my all. Mm -hmm. And that's completely wrong. Like mm -hmm. that is not how other groups do this job. It is not the only way to be successful in this job. But when it's the only narrative you've been taught and it's the only exemplar you have seen, then it's easy to understand why it is the the faith you practice and believe in, right? Mm -hmm. So I do think a big step is more women who have come up through that rank and gone through that that baptism and fire reaching out to other women who are stepping into those seats or thinking about stepping into those seats to really demystify like what is true, what is not. And also to help leaders, especially women leaders, think about like, how do you actually want to define what success means to sit in that seat? Mm -hmm. Yes, goals on a dashboard and raising millions of dollars and having a lovely, you know, NPS score for organizations that do that is wonderful. But those are all typically externally created goals. They're not self-authored. So I think one of the other things that leaders need to really be thoughtful about proactively is what are the hallmarks that are going to define success for me, not only at the end of this program year, but at the end of my tenure, like what is it that I am working to achieve, not only in terms of driving outcomes for the populations we serve, but also for myself and my career. That sounds selfish. It's not. We have to get people out of thinking that anytime you work in the nonprofit sector and you think about yourself, you're the devil. Like that's not what it's about. I think the only way you build a sustainable career in this sector is if you actually regularly take the time to step back and think about not only how you're serving the work, but how the work is actually serving you, mm. right? And I think doing that on your own, but also as part of communities, right? It's like, we have a wonderful community. 
They have a group of women, mostly EDs, called the Women's Leadership Council that we get together regularly. Part of it is to share best practices and talk about the work. But quite frankly, one of the biggest motivations for us in creating it was really to create the community that women could draw strength from when they needed it. Mm -hmm. And also, quite frankly, be their authentic selves from and not fear being judged, Mm -hmm. right? And so I would just say my third point would be, I think leaders need to find those communities for themselves, whether they are self-created or they join something that exists, but so they also aren't walking this path alone Mm because this job is lonely and it's isolating. And if you do it without interacting with other compatriots, you will not do it for as long as you probably could and you will be nowhere nearly as successful as you want. Mm -hmm. So. I feel like we're among friends. So I'm going to admit something to you. And if I have board members listening, you should just know this. But I got to that point yes. in my career yeah. where, you know, I was giving everything. And frankly, it led to some very serious personal sacrifice. I mean, quite frankly, to the point that my marriage was at risk. Mm-hmm. And I had to, to your point, recalibrate. Mm-hmm. And I had to give myself permission for some days to just be a B minus student. That's right. Because my A yeah. every single day, my A plus every single day was yeah. exhausting. Totally. And frankly, my B minus was a lot of other people's A's. That's right. That's so sometimes you can be a B minus. I love it. And take care of yourself. I love it, Rhea. Spot on. Right? Double click, check, check, amen. I can't say any more to validate. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. I love it. Nope. And, and look, obviously like the overachiever Asian kid in me was like, well, this is not right. This is not right. The, the principal in the sky is going to come down and give me the, send me to the principal's office. But I mean, Love the truth it. is it's a marathon, not a sprint. That's right. Most important thing to remember. That's right. And frankly, the other thing is nobody's going to give you a gold medal for working 90 hours a week. There are no gold stars in the nonprofit sector. <laughs> there Leave no- that for your kids or your childhood. Yeah. Done. Yeah. <laughs> Not happening. Yeah. And so, like, you guys to the point when I was like, this is really important to me. Yeah. Like, this is about the values. This is about the legacy I want to live. But yeah. it's not everything. Absolutely. And once, Absolutely. And once I got to that point where it wasn't everything is actually when I started to take care of myself. And actually, I think in my 30s at one point, I said, I think I said, Self-care for wussies. Right. Yes, totally. <laughs> and then I almost had a, a breakdown. That's right. And I was like, oh, wait. Now I get it. Oh, yeah, that's self-care thing. <laughs> that thing. That, I got to put that back yeah, on that, the list. That, that's kind of important. <laughs> I love it. So, And also, you know what? The other thing for me, too, was saying no. Yes. I was like, I have to do all of the things, no. right? Someone asked me to do a favor. Someone asked me to go to a meeting. Someone, okay, yeah, because I'm the girl who's going to do it all. Exactly. And I was like, oh, wait, no. Yes, absolutely. So, yes. So for me, I implemented, I think it was like 2015. Mm-hmm. If it's not a hell yes, it's a no. That's right. That's right. It's so funny because I feel like everybody went off the deep end. I love her, but I feel like everybody went off the deep end with Shonda Rhimes' The Year of Yes. Oh, I was like, no. And started like (laughs) re-upping on this philosophy of say yes to everything. And I really would love for her or someone else of her stature to actually write the companion book, which is The Year That Follows That Is Filled With No. Because I do think we are overcommitted, overscheduled, and honestly, typically – 
we are doing things that, again, don't feed us in the ways that we need to be fed, to be re-energized, to be restored, to be replenished, Mm -hmm. to actually then come back and re-engage with this work at our best. We are not doing ourselves Mm -hmm. a service. But again, I think when you work, do this work alone, you don't have what I like to call a gale to your Oprah, right? Mm -hmm. You don't realize when this is happening until you go over the cliff, mm-hmm. right? And that's when you have to do the major pullback, mm-hmm. which could have been spared if someone had just helped you to understand or translated or shook you by the shoulders and said, like, saying no has power too. Shonda, girl, we love you. <laughs> But come on. Yes. Help us with the other book. Write the other book. And you know what? I'm going to call out Sheryl Sandberg on this one too. The lean in. Because look, fine. I get it. Like take your seat at the table. But also recognize that like there's a toll for leaning in, especially for women of color. Oh, my Lord. The emotional tax. Mm -hmm. The black woman tax. The Asian woman tax. The Latina tax Mm -hmm. of leaning in. Totally. Is a thing. Oh, it's a huge thing. And my, anyway, I'm not going to get into the, (laughs) this for another podcast. We'll do a book review. Cheryl, we're coming for you. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough read, I think, for certain groups in particular, especially those that traditionally haven't had what I call a seat at the table. Mm -hmm. It's almost impossible to leave in when nobody will open the door to Mm. let you take a seat, much less pull out a chair when you fight your way Mm. in there. So it's written from a certain perspective for people or I think individuals who've achieved a certain level of status and have a certain level of privilege and access, mm-hmm. but it's not for everybody. But on that note, and this yes. is something that we talked about beforehand. So mm-hmm. of late, and I'm going to write a blog post about this. Yes. My, my motto has been, what would Chad do? Mm. Mm. And so who is Chad? Chad is like, <laughs> who is Chad? Chad is, you know, you're, you're a mediocre white man who fails upward and was born on third base. Mm-hmm. And so I realized I spend so much of my time second guessing myself, yep. going through the argument a million times over, making sure my data was totally. sound, mm-hmm. making sure that like the presentation was sound. And mm-hmm. I just thought to myself, is this what Chad does? Mm-hmm. Does Chad not ask for what he really wants? Mm-hmm. No. Does Chad take on the emotional labor of other people's lives? Mm-hmm. No. Does Chad worry that he's not enough? No. Mm-mm. No. And the other side of that, right, is is Chad told, even when he's the leader, that maybe it's better if he sends his second in command to the meeting mm. because the second in command has more identities in common with the person offering the meeting. And that person's a donor, that person's a connect, right? Yeah. That's, yeah, no, Chad is real. Chad. Especially for people of color. Yeah. So for all those folks of color listening, what would Chad do? That's the right mindset. <laughs> and actually, what would Chad do serve me well? I, 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 this is a recent thing, but like Chad helped me to ask bigger, right? Like I, I made a bigger ask than I would personally have done because I was like, Chad, Chad would have no problem totally. asking for more. Totally. Exactly. And so you get more when you ask for more. That's right. I, my rule of thumb for my kids and for my students and for anybody who will listen is never say no to yourself. Yeah. That's somebody else's job. Yeah. And we often start by constraining ourselves. We're so worried that we're going to overstep. 
if you've been invited in for the meeting, and obviously, if you can get some insight on what the neighborhood is, always ask for the top, always go higher, and always think like Chad, right? Channel somebody else. (laughs) You know, I got to say, we have to stop being content with the Feast of Crumbs. Ooh, say that again. Let's stop being content with the Feast of Crumbs. I like that. Take the cake. I like that. I I like it. There's a blog post or a book. Yeah. Maybe that's a book title. I always think about that George Michael song when he's like, if they ask what side my bread is buttered, I take the knife as well. Yes. I love it. I mean, to quote George Michael. (laughs) I'm just saying. I love it. Anyway, so we're at our time. So any last thoughts that you have as we sign off? Because this has been been like therapy. So for those of you listening, you're welcome. That's also what Chad would say, by the way. Exactly. Yeah, I think the only last thing I would say, just the the big theme of this conversation is, you asked me what leadership is. Mm-hmm. I think the one thing I didn't say that I would add is leadership is never a journey to be walked alone. I love it. Right? It's It's so much better experienced and then leveraged when you do it in the company of people you trust, mm-hmm. people who can teach you, people who you can teach. And really thinking about as a leader at all stages in your career, how you are developing those communities, constantly staying hungry for new learning, but also becoming discerning enough to know who to listen to, who not to listen to, and when to trust yourself above all others. And so I would just encourage everyone, if you end this podcast and you do nothing else, think about how you have designed your own leadership experience to be one that is that is happening as part of a bigger community beyond just yourself. Yeah. It reminds me of that proverb. If you want to go fast, you go, go alone. alone. But if you want to go, go far, we go, go together. That's right. That's one of my favorites. Yeah. I love that one. Thank uh, you, love. Thank you, Erica. This has been so fun. fun. We're going to have another podcast. We're going to talk about Charles Sanford. I love it. We'll do it later. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much. Thank talk you, Bye. Bye. Bye.